Hello, and welcome to the Green Tea Party, where we discuss conservative solutions to environmental problems. I'm Hannah Rogers. My name is Zach Torpy. Together, we will guide you through complex issues and provide strategies to address them. All while remaining faithful to our conservative values. Trust me, it'll be a good time. Yeah, it's a party, so grab your mugs and we're going to pour the tea. Zach, have you been keeping up on the news recently? Which news? There's lots of news. Oh, there's always a lot of news. I mean, I feel like some. I have the Apple News on my phone. The Apple News is always giving me notifications about tragedies and horror stories and all of those things. Yeah, I can't get news notifications on my phone. It's uh, too. There's too much going on all the time. There <laughs> reading about it eventually. <laughs> One story that I've been following is the case of Donald Trump running for re-election. Have you been following his re-election campaign at all? Yeah, yeah, I've been following the campaign and the controversies. Oh, there's so many controversies. We're going to narrow in on one of these controversies today, just because it leads into the whole subject of the episode. But there's been, you know, the defamation case, the civil case, the criminal case. It's just all these lawsuits that he's going through in his re-election campaign and it kind of it's a real nail biter isn't it yeah he's struggling with a lot of different um cases and all sorts of different parts of the law anyone who's paid attention to the trump campaign is getting a full discourse in like american law federal versus state law constitutional law rico cases <laughs> rico cases what's a rico case that's the that's the racketeering one that's where you like oh. incorrect people and that's the one he's being charged with in georgia I've never heard it called Rico before. I've always just heard it called racketeering. This is a new vocabulary word for me today. The one that I've been following recently is the case with Colorado government. So the Colorado government took Donald Trump off of the ballot, right? They said, we don't want our you know, constituents voting for someone who's not allowed to hold office because he has a criminal proceeding. So they removed him from the ballot for the primaries, right? Yep. But the... Supreme Court put a hold on it until they could get a chance to um, wade in. Basically, Colorado Court was like, all right, well, you get to make the decision. Okay, so at first when I heard this, I was like, huh, I wonder why they did that. That sounds really strange to me. At first, I was like, and I was reading, do you know who Robert Reich is? Robert Reich? No. Okay, so Robert Reich is an economist, and he's a world-renowned economist. He used to be the Secretary of Labor under President Clinton. Robert Reach was talking about the importance of democracy and the importance of democratic regime types in facing crises. So I figured since all this stuff with democracy and whether who you can and can't vote for and who is and isn't allowed to be on the ballot, I thought we should do an episode on democratic regime types versus more authoritarian regime types and then also flawed democratic regime types to figure out which regime type is the best for mitigating climate change and meeting the needs of people during environmental crises, right? Very interesting. Colorado's trying to keep Trump off the ballot, which I personally don't think is democratic. I don't know what you think about that. I think that's a decision that should be left up to the people. Whether they want him or not is up to them. Shouldn't be yes, handled exactly. by or some judge. Yeah, some grant some judges in Colorado. I don't know if that really would have affected the entire country, but they shouldn't have that right to take him off the ballot. Well, yeah, and imagine if California started to realize the political power that they had 
if they could just take whoever they wanted off of the ballot on a basis of things that you know aren't entirely settled. I mean, Trump has not fully been convicted for the criminal charges he's been pressed with, right? Yeah, I think that's a major issue is they he's being charged without being found guilty of the crime. Yes. And, and however much I do and don't like some of the things that Donald Trump does, I still think it's unethical and undemocratic for people to be taking him off the ballot because if people want to vote for someone who is being pressed with criminal charges and people want to vote for him, then that is their democratic vote. They should be allowed to vote for them, especially in the primary. I will be voting the Republican primary in Colorado, and I would like him to be there, even if I don't vote for him. I probably won't, but <laughs> I would like the option. <laughs> you don't have the right to take away my options. Thank you. I, I'm glad that we're on the same page here. Okay, so getting back to climate change. So one thing being a student of climate science that I don't think a lot of people know is just how critical it is to act swiftly, quickly, and effectively. Yeah, got to make sure you're moving in the right direction and make sure you're ta- making the right choices. A lot of people in the environmental realm want to give more power to government and so that they can do more things more quickly, more effectively, if that makes sense. Like, oh man, if we just expanded the power of the executive and we expanded the power of the EPA, then maybe we could just have one big executive order that declares climate change a crisis and then one sweeping big executive order comes through and solves the climate crisis all by itself. Yeah, a lot of people think that just vesting all this power into one person will that one person will take that power, do the right thing, and lead effectively. But like maybe he's not effective. Or maybe what comes after him, even if he is effective. Mm-hmm. Just being being reliant on that one person makes you a very unstable nation. Especially because climate change is a huge crisis. And there's a lot of academic, you know, papers that show that when there is a huge crisis, we could talk about like the COVID-19 crisis because that was, you know, a health public health crisis or a crisis from outside the country could be the economic crisis after the fall of Soviet Union or when Chiang Kai-shek rose to power during the 1920s in China after they had this huge revolution that left people searching for answers. The Nazis also came to power in the post-World War One crisis in Germany, especially after all that economic devastation that they went through. One thing that people don't realize is if climate change is a crisis, which it is an environmental crisis, it's an unprecedented, enormous environmental crisis, we have to be very, very careful about how we proceed with government because we don't want to be giving up too much of our power as people to the government to solve this problem for us. Yeah, we can't be reliant on the government to solve everything. We can't be reliant on just say just one president or one person to figure everything out. We are a democracy. We need to rely on our democracy to run effectively and be responsive to the wills and needs of the people. Yes, exactly. I love what you said about the wills and the needs of the people, because I feel like what happens is these populist demagogues come about and they say, I can give you everything you ever want and you ever need if you just pick me to be your leader. But it's really tempting if we're experiencing an unprecedented environmental crisis, to elect people who say those kinds of things. Yeah. A a lot of countries in crisis lean towards the authoritarian to solve their issues. And you don't know when that authoritarian will leave. The Germans elected the Nazis in a crisis. And the Nazis were like, well, we're going to stay. We're not going to leave. Thank you for voting us in. But we don't need any more elections. We think we figured this thing out. (laughs) 
Well, and here's another thing is you can even look back through American history and see the power of the executive expanding through each successive crisis. I mean, look at what FDR did with the executive powers during World War II, right? He was leading the country by decree, essentially, during World War II. Granted, a lot of people really love him. A lot of people really like him. There's a nice big memorial to him in D.C., but there is no denying that he was almost a four-term president. He was a three-term president, right? Yeah, he died during his fourth term, so only three complete terms. So FDR served four terms, well, three and a half, we'll say, during World War II. And he won in a landslide in every election, pretty much. But he also expanded the executive power to extents that it, it never reached before. He was kind of doing things that Congress did. He was kind of doing things that the judicial system did. And and people didn't really think that that was a problem until after he died. They were like, wait a minute. Maybe we should have term limits for the executive, first of all. Second of all, that guy did way more stuff than he was constitutionally allowed to do. And he also had a very intimate relationship with the American people. He had his weekly fireside chats that everyone would tune into on the radio he was very charismatic. People really loved him and cared about him. But if you're not careful, someone who's very charismatic and seems to have your best interests in mind could also just be trying to, you know, get you on their side so that they can take power away. When the legislature and the judicial branch really step back and don't enforce their checks on the executive branch, the executive has continued to push and push and push the limits of their power. And if Congress isn't going to say no. If the judges aren't going to say no, they'll just keep doing it, which is we've become a much more president-dominated country than I think our founding fathers intended because the legislative has chosen not to enforce their rule and has allowed the workarounds of the executive branch around Congress. Yeah. And you know, another president that also did this was Abraham Lincoln. Remember how he got rid of the writs of habeas corpus so that he could expedite the criminal proceedings of Confederates? So you could imprison people without giving them a fair and speedy trial. Yeah. It seems that every crisis has uh, someone there to take advantage of it. Of course, a lot of times it's necessary, but what what is the damage that's done if when that's held in permanence that they the actions they took? Well, the sad thing about it is the damage that they've done is not always reversible because that means it sets a really strong precedent for what future presidents could do. I mean, people can can judge and say, oh, you know, we shouldn't have done that. But sometimes it's really difficult to shrink the size of an executive office once it's been expanded. Yeah. Leading back to Trump's current run, it was interesting hearing these uh, Supreme Court's questioning of the immunity case and the judges asking if, if Joe Biden decided to start taking hits out on people, would he be immune from prosecution, according to like the Trump's lawyer's logic? And they had no answer for that. It's like, this this was our argument, but yeah, no, sh- that shouldn't be allowed. Yeah, don't get me into Donald Trump and talking about democracy because it's a divisive thing. And I also feel like he's not the most democratic person. And so I don't think we should be reelecting him personally. I will not be voting for him. I have my personal favorites out of the Republican candidates. And it's not Donald Trump because I care about democracy, right? Here's another thing about authoritarian regimes is authoritarian regimes are very, very, very insecure. Think about Vladimir Putin. Have you ever seen his photo shoots where he's like super muscular, 
riding a horse and he's like flexing as he's always like, going down the river. He's like, these have to be super flattering. Can't be an ugly photo of me. Has to be 10 out of 10 every time. Yes. And Vladimir Putin is like a five foot nothing. He was kind of like a little bit of a mousy type. Bill Clinton describes when he first met him when he rose to power as just kind of being like a shy, awkward dude. Vladimir Putin himself is insecure and his regime is also insecure. And so what Vladimir Putin then had to do to make him seem more legitimate, because really, truly, people are, are what gives leaders power. And if that power is just enforced upon the people without the people really giving it to them, then it's not true power. And that's kind of insecure power, right? Vladimir Putin had to start doing this thing where he was all of a sudden a very masculine, very like humble guy. And he had to convince people that he deserved the power that he had. We can also see the same thing with Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-un does the same thing in North Korea. His pictures are everywhere because he's only legitimized by himself, not by the people. Yeah, these leaders, they take advantage of their situations. Even if they're pseudo-democracies, you have Putin imprisoning his, uh, op- the opposition leaders and anyone who runs against their his party, they'll put in jail or like harass. Uh-huh. And Kim Jong-un is just a pure dictatorship and he is constantly got to propaganda his image across the country and the fake fans that they have to i don't know i I assume they pay and maybe give free food to to like have like fawning over him this uh chubby guy in a bomber jacket (laughs) with a terrible haircut (laughs) yeah also why i'm talking about climate change and it's linked to authoritarianism is there is this paper called nine meals without food or nine meals away from anarchy right what it means is that people can sus- collectively sustain nine meals or three days without food before they start burning down government buildings and you know putting up a puppet dictator and all those kinds of things. Because people get hungry. And when you're hungry and when your basic needs are threatened, you're going to do whatever it takes in order to meet your basic needs. A lot of times you're not really thinking about the democratic precedent that you're setting as you're searching for answers to meet your basic needs. And so what climate change does is it threatens our literal access to food. So we are far more likely to experience nine collective meals without food under a a globally warm world than we are in a world that's habitable, hospitable, and much cooler, right? As we start going towards that two to three to four and sometimes five, six, and seven degrees Celsius change, that really threatens whether or not we're going to be able to have nine consecutive meals in a row. We may go a couple meals without food. And that is terrifying to me, especially as someone who cares about democracy and who also loves food. Yeah, I think you see a great a great example of this in the um, Sahel region in Africa right now where they're experiencing desertification and eroding of grasslands where they can grow crops and grazing for animals. And you're seeing all these coups happen and people rising up and like fighting against the government. Because there's lack of food, there's lack of support, they feel like they're not getting anything from their government. And they feel like their government's failing them and their government is reliant on foreign powers to keep them stable. Yeah. And here, here's another thing about food in the United States. We import a ton of food, right? We don't grow all of the food domestically to feed ourselves. The large swath of land in the middle of the United States is very productive for agriculture. It's very fertile. 
but it still can't feed everyone in the United States. And that's because we eat a lot of meat, which, you know, is just terrible for the planet and also terrible in terms of, you know, water and land use and all that kind of stuff. And I bet you if we all ate a vegetarian diet that we could grow all our food domestically, but we don't do that. If other countries like, you know, the Sahel region are experiencing desertification, that threatens the amount of food that we can import to feed the American people, right? It's not just a domestic problem. It's a global problem. So if we're not doing something about climate change, we're threatening our ability to feed ourselves. And we're also threatening other countries' ability to feed themselves. That has some huge implications for democracy. So I have a question for you. Shoot away. What regime type would you think is most effective for mitigating anthropogenic climate change? I'll base this looking on the governments that have been most responsive to climate change. They've been multi-party systems, such as in lots of a lot of European countries, where they're very reactive to climate change, even though they're not getting the most severe re- experiences of it. But yeah, the multi-party systems and parliamentary systems that they have in Europe seem to be very reactive to climate change. And I've been the most progressive, I'd say, on fighting climate change versus the slower moving motion of the U.S. government or the Australian government. So why do you think the United States government, even though the United States is considered a democratic republic, why do you think that we are so slow on responding that if we're a democracy and democracy are best to mitigate climate change? So I think our dem- democracy is not particularly great at being fully representative of the wills and needs of the people and has become very much entrenched in this this partisan tilt where it's one team versus the other and there's no in between. The people just run to the far edges during the primary and then they sort of jog back to the middle a little bit and you get these people who don't want to work together and just are very ineffective at passing laws. So we're a little yes. slower on enacting the will of the people. Especially then there's all the uh, gerrymandering and all the money that's in politics now where how much does our vote matter when their campaigns are billions of dollars? Yes, I 100% agree with you. The United States used to be considered a full democracy, but now I believe it's academically considered to be a flawed democracy, especially if you take into consideration the Citizens United case, right? Do you remember that one? Oh, the Citizen United case is the bane of my existence. That's the, we'll just legalize corruption. That'll solve everything. Yes. Okay, Zach, I might not be as well versed in it as you are. It was in the early 2000s, there was a movie made about Hillary Clinton and about how, how terrible this, 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 you know, pack, this pack is called Citizens United, thought that Hillary Clinton was. And it was basically a bunch of conspiracy theories. You probably have never really heard of the movie. It's like it's called like Hillary the movie. Sounds like such a fun watch. <laughs> I don't know. I, maybe I should watch it so that I can like see what it's all about. But what they're now known for is this Citizen United versus the FEC Supreme Court case. They basically sued because there were campaign finance restrictions. There used to be something called the McCain-Feingold Act. Love John McCain. John McCain is a wonderful conservative in politics. People are very familiar with him. He was this wise 
conservative politician who was a senator for Arizona. And he thought very deeply about government and the role of governments in people's lives. And he introduced something called the McCain-Feingold Act, which was in tandem with a liberal politician, Senator Senator Feingold, to restrict the kind of money that was getting into campaigns and the amount of money that individuals could donate to campaigns because he he recognized that the United States had a bit of a problem with wealth inequality and that people could not represent their voices as well if we continually equate money with free speech, right? Yeah, and it basically counted businesses as people who could have a free right to get as much as they want as like a part of their freedom of speech. So businesses now count as a person and had freedom of speech equal to individual people. What the case essentially did was made it so that, like what you said, Zach, free speech and money are equivalent and that your spending of your money on a campaign is equivalent to an expression of free speech. But not everyone has the same amount of money to spend on a campaign. Think about like, you know, blue collar workers in Pennsylvania. Do you think that they can afford a hundred million dollars to spend on any given politician's campaign? Probably not. That's what this McCain-Feingold Act was trying to protect wealth inequality, and democracy. So I feel like that's truly the turning point for American democracy, is when we started to shift away from a true democracy to a flawed democracy. But I'm open to listener input. An interesting stat I found, Hannah, was um, Citizens United was in 2010, and between the presidential elections of 2008 and 2016, money from corporations and outside groups increased by 900%. One thing that is important is to recognize that power is power, no matter where it is and no matter how it's acquired, right? So, you know, Elon Musk definitely has way more power than I do, right? Because he's extremely wealthy. Donald Trump or Joe Biden have way more power than I do because they're both huge people in the political sphere. And democracies cannot have serious power inequalities. And if you care about democracy, you got to care about wealth inequality. You also got to care about political and power inequality. I don't know if you're following me, Zach. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. We've we've shifted to a place where a lot of it's like wealth. The only way to get into politics is to already be wealthy. I have connections. I can fund my campaign. I can ask rich people that I already know for more money. And it's really just barring the working class from feeling fully represented. Feels like our elections have been less representative in my lifetime and as time goes on. Yeah. I mean, when was the last time that you like truly related to someone you saw running for Senate or president or House? When, when was the last time you felt that way? I feel that way sometimes about candidates in other states or that I'm not voting for, but I've never really felt truly represented by any candidate or senator or president that I've had the chance to vote for. Yeah, me either. That's disturbing because if I saw someone who came from like a working class family from a mining town, they were running for president, I would think, gosh, you know, they know what it's like to struggle like I do. My family comes from a mining town. My, you know, I'm a generation removed from that, but I would think, gosh, like, you know, they already have my interests in mind because my interests are the same interests that they have. But I'm so tired of seeing ultra wealthy, you know, these political establishment people or these business establishment people in the case of Donald Trump, 
running for office because they don't know what it's like to be you or I at all, right? Yeah. You see every year, everyone's like, oh, well, everyone's like, what billionaire is going to run for cop, run for a president next? Like, is Mark Cuban going to run for president? Is Oprah going to run for president? And it's like, I feel like Trump really opened the Pandora's box where rich people were like, oh, we could just like buy our way into superpower and politics, be effective and do what we want and like get tax breaks for the the types of businesses we want and change the laws to benefit us. Yeah. We didn't have that billionaire class that was just doing whatever they wanted with the environment, then maybe you wouldn't be so concerned about climate change because it wouldn't have been possible for people to do that. Well, on the Taylor Swift point, I would like to point out that I've never seen Fox News cover someone's emissions so intently as they have with <laughs> Taylor Swift. So that's one good thing that she's done for Fox News, got them folks on rich people's emissions. Actually, that is so true. <laughs> There's always a silver lining. Because Fox News, for all the things that I like that they say and that they do, I'm always very disappointed when they cover climate because they're just, they're muddying the waters and they're not making it clear. And it makes me, th- it makes me laugh because what Taylor Swift has done is all of a sudden made Fox News care about climate change. <laughs> so I guess that is, that is true. But either way, what I was going to say is that wealth inequality is really important to, to democracy to make sure that we have an equal distribution of wealth in their society. And wealth inequality is actually the worst that it's ever been in the history of the United States today, which is crazy, right? That's what makes me so fiery about wealth inequality and democracy is it's really important for the climate to have an equal distribution of wealth. It's also really important for democracy. This wealth inequality really skews the money that comes into the presidential elections and the congressional elections because the middle class can't afford to really give money to elections anymore. They can't support candidates they like when they're competing with super PACs that can give unlimited money from rich people who have money that they can spend and aren't worried about what's going to impact them and aren't worried about their next meal or their next emergency or their next trip to the vet. Like These people have money that they can use, whereas the middle class is shrinking and our ability to influence the elections is shrinking. And you know what? Next episode, I want to talk about my experience working for a super PAC. I mean, I chose to do it. I couldn't afford groceries. I couldn't afford, you know, my train fare to get to work. Meanwhile, the wealthiest people in the company were collectively making three to four million dollars a year. And they couldn't take a pay cut, maybe a teeny tiny pay cut so that I could get paid a livable wage and they could pay everyone else a livable wage. But they chose not to. I think this is a major issue in a lot of industries of administrative blow where all the salary goes straight oh. to the top and it it's not it doesn't come doesn't trickle down and it's not being like rewarded to the workers. It's like if the company has a great quarter, the workers don't get rewarded for working so hard and earning that money. It goes straight to the like stock buybacks, which reward shareholders, but not the people who are making the products and putting in the work. No, this is sometimes where I feel it's anti free market very against a free market ideas to pay workers very low wages. How are the workers going to participate in a free and democratic marketplace if they don't have any spending money? I'm so sorry. I feel like I have gone a bit on a tangent here. But for our listeners, I actually have a podcast episode I want you guys to listen to. I'll drop the link in the episode description. The podcast episode is called Citizens United from More Perfect. And Work Work Get Perfect is produced by Radiolab. And this is just a really in-depth overview of what Citizens United was and exactly 
how we got to where we are today with public equality and democracy. And then also, if you want to email us or call us on our Google Voice line, I'm going to have that in the episode description as well. That would be wonderful because we want to hear some feedback on what you think about Welcome to Quality and Democracy. Yeah, we would love your feedback. Reach out to us on greenteapartyradio.com. Uh, give us feedback on your opinions on Citizens United and how wealth and quality impacts the environment and voting power of the average person. And re- you can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. So for you, our listeners, email us with your thoughts. Our email is info at greenteapartyradio.com. Also, be sure to listen to that Citizens United episode from Radiolab. It's really incredible. And thank you so much for listening. A very special guest to all of our Patreons. We really couldn't do this out without you. And also, go check out our Patreon if you haven't already. And just so you know, this is our passion product. We don't have any organizational sponsors. We are a building movement because we want to the world to know that conservatives have important things to say about climate change and the environment. We want our opinions in the universe. So hopefully someone's listening and take action. If you want to hear our show on your college radio station, email us at info.greenteapartyradio.com and give us details about your campus and your radio station. The email again is info at greenteapartyradio.com. Thank you for another wonderful episode. I'm glad we could rant a little bit about wealth inequality and climate change and also democracy and wealth inequality. I think, you know, I'm excited to see where this little series goes. Yeah, this was great. Thank you, Hannah. Looking forward to the rest of the episode. All right, and thank you to our listeners. Hi, I'm Drew Irely. I am the Conservative Outreach Director for Citizens Climate Lobby. My path to being a conservative, uh, concerned about climate action, was definitely a long one. Growing up, it was a very rural area. You had to be into the outdoors or you were going to be bored out of your mind. So I grew up doing a lot of hunting, fishing. I was the only the, the second person on my mom's side to graduate high school. I graduated June 6th, 05, at like 7.30 at night, and by 8 o'clock the next morning, I was on my way to basic training on my 17th birthday. I had deployments to Iraq, Afghanistan, rotations through Cuba. It was during this time that I really became concerned with energy infrastructure, but I wasn't ready to take action yet. It took the birth of a 10-pound baby girl with cheeks so big she couldn't open her eyes to really get me to open mine. My life just went from the next 50 years to the next 75. What if she's the veteran that follows in my footsteps and she's in the VA suffering from exposure? You know, what if she's on a fossil fuel route and you know, subject to an IED? How will I be able to look at her in the eye and say, I knew that this could be an issue that you would have to face and I chose to do nothing about it. It's why we fight wars. You know, we fight them now so our kids don't have to. I am fighting climate change now, so my daughters don't have to. A lot of people, you know, they say conservatives don't care about climate change, and it's not true at all. We just want sensible policies that don't destroy the economy in trying to find a solution. We have that here at Citizens Climate Lobby. There are a lot of leadership opportunities for conservatives, especially in red states and districts with Republican congressional offices. 
Conservatives can also join CCL's Conservative Caucus. It's a national group of Republicans and other right-of-center individuals where conservatives can get together and regularly meet online and have strictly conservative-based conversations. Sharing our personal story is how we make a difference. Conservative and concerned about climate change? You're not alone. My name is Chelsea Henderson, and I host RepublicEN.org's Eco Right Speaks, bringing you weekly guest interviews and stories. John Kasich, Christine Todd Whitman, Congresswoman Nancy Mace, meteorologist Marshall Shepard. Each week, we have a conversation with an Eco Right leader, bringing you information, opinions, personal stories, and much, much more. Download, listen, subscribe, and join us each week on the Eco Right Speaks.